it is hard to overestimate the significance of the idea that we're going to discuss today. Some ideas really matter, and this is one of them. Ideas are not just for philosophers, they're for all of us. And some ideas have the power to completely change the way we see ourselves and our world and God. This is one of them. I'm talking about the idea known as justification by faith. Say that after me. Justification by faith. Very good. Before you check out, because the phrase sounds so technical or so familiar or so boring, talking to you, Andy, (laughs) before you check out on account of these things, know this, justification by faith answers a most fundamental question. How do we become friends of God? How do you become God's friend? What do you think? Underneath this question is an assumption. The Bible makes an assumption that's opposite of most people's assumption. The biblical assumption is that we were all once enemies of God. Perhaps we still are. Since we are or were enemies of God, Something must happen in order for us to become God's friend. That something is justification by faith. Say that with me one more time. Justification by faith. You're almost as good as Lily at repeating things after me. (laughs) Now, very few people consider themselves God's enemy. Ask anyone on the street, and I bet they respond, I'm a pretty good person. How about you? Do you consider yourself a pretty good person? To justify this view that we are good people, we often compare ourselves to whomever we consider society's worst. See, I told you I'm a good person. The court of self finds the defendant not guilty. But if it were true that we are all basically good people, If that were true, one would expect to see a society that is much better than it is. If most of us were basically good, we could all just go on being ourselves. And society would inevitably progress to utopia without any help from God. But what do you think? Can we all just get along and make gradual progress until we become a perfect society? Many people thought that before World War II. (laughs) The wars proved otherwise. God does not think that. God's perspective is far greater than ours. You see, God has the bird's eye view. Like a bald eagle, God hovers over creation, surveying the earth to see if there is just one person who is truly good inside and out. No, there's not, Jesus himself says. Then he finds out the hard way that it's true. There is no one who is good but God alone. His sufferings of betrayal and crucifixion prove the fact. For he came to his own people, but they didn't want him. 
as John's gospel says. So we are enemies of God, not friends. If this is the truth about ourselves, that we are not as good as we think we are, a set of questions present themselves. Well, then how do I become good? Number one. How do I get on God's good side? Number two. And number three, how do I become God's friend? The answer, in every case, is justification by faith. Say that one more time. Justification by faith. That's what we're going to explore this morning. That's the big idea that has the power to completely overhaul our understanding of ourselves, our world, and our God, if you let it. It was the Apostle Paul who first published this idea around the year 60 AD, about a generation after Jesus. However, the idea predates Paul. We see glimmers of it throughout the Old Testament. We recognize seeds of it in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus, who you might recall, forgives sin even before a sinner gets his life straight. But it's the early church leader, Paul, who develops the idea most fully, the idea of justification by faith. So watch out, my friends. We are playing with dynamite here. This idea has the power to change things. The first of two readings I want to offer you today is from Paul's letter to the Romans. First reading is found in chapter 3, beginning with Page 916 in your pew Bibles, verse 28, chapter 3, 916 in your pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And God will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. This is the word of the Lord. To appreciate the idea, the reality of justification by faith, let's first consider some of the ways we try to justify ourselves. What are some of the ways we try to prove to ourselves and others, perhaps God, that we are in the right? To justify is to set right. God sets us right by faith, apart from works. That's the basic idea here. But the truth is we all find ways to justify ourselves. We try to prove that we are in the right according to our own goodness. Don't believe me, just get married and have a few arguments. (laughs) You will quickly find that you try to prove how you are in the right. So what are some of the ways we try to prove that we are in the right? What are some of the ways we try to justify ourselves? Well, we work, for one, right? How many of you work? Show of hands. We have any? Yeah, we work. I like that you're still raising your hand, Huey. Well done. (laughs) We work. We work hard at our jobs. It's a good thing. We work hard at school. Again, good thing. We work hard at being good citizens and good church members. 
Some of us work hard at being popular, successful, and happy. Our work is occasionally rewarded with awards. Employee of the month bonuses, educational scholarships, sports trophies, deacon and elder nominations. We look back on all this success and declare ourselves in the right. By our achievements, we demonstrate to others and to God that we are good. We are justified, or so we think, by our works, our accomplishments, our successes, our good choices. That's the first method of self-justification. We try to justify ourselves by pointing to our good works. Well, look at me. Look at what I've done. See, I told you I'm a good person. But if Paul is right, none of that is going to help us enter a lasting friendship with God. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works. Furthermore, as he'll say in chapter 8, it is God who justifies, not ourselves. Now there's another method of justifying ourselves. It doesn't require as much physical work. So if you're interested in proving that you're in the right, without all the work, well then listen up. You'll want to take this strategy to heart. There's a disclaimer, though. This method of justifying ourselves, it requires a whole lot of mental effort. The method is called this. It's called reframing. Reframing. Say that after me. Reframing. Here's how it works. Whenever we are accused of not being a good person, a good spouse, a good parent, one thing we can do is we can work things out in our minds so that the accusations are proved false. We can work things out in our minds to justify ourselves. We do this by comparing ourselves, like I said, to others. We highlight the best in ourselves and the worst in others. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. And And then, here's here's what else we can do. We can minimize the bad things we've done and maximize the good things we've done. Like I said, this stuff shows up in marital arguments all over the world. (laughs) We rationalize, all right, we rationalize the way we've wronged others so that they don't seem so bad. And that's how we reframe the facts. We reframe our self-perception, how we perceive ourselves, and with enough mental gymnastics, we come out on top every time. See, look. I told you I'm a good person, a good spouse, a good kid, a good friend. Now these two methods, working hard, reframing, they often go hand in hand in our attempts at self-justification. They are wonderful partners for proving to ourselves that we are in the right, that we are just, that we are good people at least better than most. Did you know that studies show that uh, the average, that that people, 70% of people think they're above average in most categories. (laughs) Think about that. 70% of people think they're above average. (laughs) But again, we really need to get this. None of this working hard, none of this reframing things 
None of this is going to make a lick of difference when it comes to entering a lasting friendship with God. For we hold that a person is justified, set right, declared in the right, how? By faith, apart from works. This is good news. And in reality, it is only God who can justify us, not ourselves. Now, I believe, as you can probably tell, that there are several problems with self-justification. One problem, from my experience, is that it requires constant maintenance. If it's up to me to prove that I'm good, then the task never ends, and I'm left exhausted. I could serve on a committee or give to a cause. I could read a book or perform an act of kindness. I could sign my kid up for a new program, and that may satisfy my sense of being a good parent, a good person, for a short while. But not long after these good works are completed, my conscience will accuse me once more. Is this your experience as well, or is this just me? This happens in part because we can always do more. We can always be a better spouse, a better parent, a better friend, a better neighbor, a better fill-in-the-blank. How do we know if we've ever been good enough? Here's a real-life example that demonstrates why the self-justification project is doomed to failure. I knew a man who seemed to believe his whole life that he was a good person based on his good deeds. But then I watched him die. Slowly, as his body began to fail, he began to seriously question whether he'd done enough to warrant life after death. I suppose he went through life trying to convince himself that despite his flaws, the good outweighed the bad. A whole lot of reframing had gone on his whole life, you see. But now, at the end of his life, reframing wasn't working anymore. When faced with the reality of death, he couldn't help but doubt whether it was really true. Have I done enough? Did I spend enough time with my kids? Did I volunteer enough? I wish I would have started going to church much earlier. Am I a good enough person to enter heaven? He wondered aloud. I hope so, he said. I hope so. <laughs> my heart broke for him. I don't know about you, but I don't want my eternal fate resting on a hope so. <laughs> Neither does God. God, in his grace and love, doesn't just want us to hope so. God wants us to know so. Please listen to this. God doesn't just want us to hope so when it comes to our everlasting friendship with him. God wants us to know so. How do we know so? We know so based on 
faith. We know so based on our interactive friendship with God. That's been going on for quite some time and will go on forever. That's what God wants for everyone. That's precisely why God justifies us in advance and why God does so by faith. For we hold that a person is justified, which means acquitted by the judge as not guilty. We hold that a person is justified by God, acquitted. How? By faith, apart from works prescribed by the law. At this point, I want Paul to say more. Paul has got some more explaining to do. Not quite sure I grasp how all this works. Say more, Paul, about how I become a friend with God now. Say more about how I should, about why I should even desire such a friendship. And by God's grace and the Spirit's inspiration, Paul says more. So now we turn to our second reading, starting in chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now I want to strongly encourage you to pull out your pew Bible and follow along. I don't often, or, or, your, or your personal Bible is fine too, <laughs> I don't often strongly encourage you to do this, but I'm doing so today because Paul's letter to the Romans is one of the more difficult to follow, okay? It's very difficult to follow without seeing it in front of our eyes, so if you can, if you will, page 917 in your pew Bibles, 917. Our friends, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Say that with me. Peace with God. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Not only that, we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. 
but more than that. We even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, friendship. This is the good news of justification by faith, and it's the word of God. Thanks be to God. The reason we can't justify ourselves is because we were never meant to. We were never meant to do good apart from God. Instead, we were always meant to be good solely on account of our friendship with God. This, <laughs> this is an idea that is transformative if we can grasp it. We need God's friendship in order to get along in the world. That's not a bad thing, but a good thing. It's how we were made to depend on God's constant, friendly companionship. Much like an infant can't survive without the tender care of her mother or another guardian, we cannot survive spiritually, relationally, psychologically. We cannot survive without the care of God. To put it differently, we were made for love. Out of the wondrous love of the Trinity, our God created us. God created human beings from love for love. We were made for love. We were made to reciprocate God's love. You understand what this means for us? Our loving friendship with God was intended to be the source of our love for others. In the Genesis account, it says that God walked in the midst of them in the garden. God's presence, friendship with us. Now, out of the channel of this friendship, picture a channel, a water channel, if you will. Out of the channel of this friendship, love was meant to flow into every other relationship until every crevice of creation is filled with nothing but the glory of God, the magnificent beauty of God. That's how we were made to love our neighbors from the source of our friendship with our loving God. Love God, love neighbor. That's Jesus' summary of the entire law of God. But here's the deal. We rejected God's law and God's love. We did not reciprocate God's love. Our first human parents failed to trust God's love. It all seemed too good to be true. Instead, they trusted in themselves. And so have we at one point or another. That's what the story of Adam and Eve and the apple, or whatever fruit they ate, that's what it's all about. It's about the failure to reciprocate God's love. The failure to trust God's goodness. It's about the prideful attempt to justify ourselves by our works. To redefine goodness in our own terms. To make ourselves happy by whatever means we see fit. The fall of humanity is about relating to God, listen to this, it's about relating to God only when it's convenient. 
and when it suits our agenda of making a better life for ourselves. We were not interested in becoming God's friend, so we became God's enemy. But then Christ enters the picture. At the fullness of time, Christ enters the picture. At the right time, our scripture says, Christ enters the picture of our lives. Unless Christ enters the picture of our lives, we are stuck in this situation, in this, in this perpetual attempt to make ourselves happy through whatever means we see fit. But it's not working for us, my friends. The cracks are starting to show we cannot make ourselves happy. Unless Christ enters the picture of our lives, we are stuck in this pattern of thinking and relating to the world and to God. That's why Paul calls us weak in Romans 5. Weak. We are unable to love God and love our neighbor adequately in our own strength. And that's why Paul calls us ungodly. Ungodly simply means what? It means not like God. We are not like God, who is love. Self-sacrificing, other-oriented love. We are not like that in and of ourselves. That's why Paul calls us enemies. Turns out our self-promoting agendas are at odds with God's agenda for renewing the world in love. Finally, that's why Paul calls us sinners. To sin, as Craig Barn notes, is not just to do something wrong. Listen to this. He says, to sin is not just to do something wrong. It is to surrender to a power that pulls us from God. Like slaves or addicts, we may yearn for freedom, but we are incapable of finding freedom from the tyranny of sin on our own. Trying harder is useless. It is only as we surrender to this hard indictment that God's liberation in Jesus Christ flows into our souls like a river of grace. This surrender Paul calls faith. And that's how we are justified. We surrender. That's how we are set right with God and with others. Justification by faith. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. This is good news. This is the gospel. Can you accept it? Can you surrender to the hard indictment that, all things considered, you are not innocent but guilty before God? Can you accept the peculiar logic of God's own self-sacrifice that declares us right with God? Can you trust Jesus 
and therein trust that your friendship with God has been restored through him. Past tense. Reconciliation. You have been reconciled through Christ's life. Can you accept this? If so, then it's true. If so, then all of the wonderful benefits are yours. That's it. That's all it takes. That's justification by faith. The judge, God, has laid down the gavel. God justifies you, which means God declares you in the right solely on the basis of your trust in Jesus. On this basis alone does God render his final verdict. By the grace of God, the heavenly court finds the defendant not guilty, acquitted, free to leave the imprisonment of self-improvement projects. So let's go. Let's get out of here. Let's leave the old friends of pride and lust and envy behind. You're the king's kid now. Believe it. Live in the good news. Live in friendship with your good God. Do this over time, and you will find that you are becoming more and more good. <laughs> you are becoming a better person. Truly good from the inside out. Not because you're trying hard from your own strength, but get this, because of your proximity to the king. Friends rub off on each other, you know. By the grace of God, you have become the king's kid, friend of the Almighty, brother or sister of the Prince of Peace, Jesus. You ought to be smiling, people. This is the best news in the world. Just sitting back here like, oh, interesting, okay. Friends, by the grace of God, you are the king, God, the king's kid, friend of the Almighty, brother or sister of the Prince of Peace, Jesus. The more you spend time at the dinner table of this divine family of love, the more you'll become like Jesus. And at the end of the day, Jesus of Nazareth is the only true standard of a good person. By God's grace, through faith, we are becoming like him. Listen to how Paul joyfully speaks of the benefits we receive because of this reality called justification by faith. He writes, since we are justified by faith, we have what? We have, remember, Peace with God. Not just peace, but peace with God. What's the difference? Well, Paul is not simply talking about an inner sense of well-being or feeling at peace, we might say. I feel at peace with this decision. Rather, Paul's talking about what scholar Douglas Moo calls the outward situation of being in a relationship of peace with God. We are in a relationship of peace with God. Not because of our works, achievements, reframing, but because of grace through faith. Of course, a renewed sense of well-being and a feeling at peace, these are byproducts of this greater peace, but the real deal is peace with God. 
It's the most spectacular gift you'll ever receive. And you receive it through the mouth of faith. You receive it by embracing all that God holds out to you, which is the gift of himself. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only peace with God do we receive, but what else do we receive? We receive grace. Through Jesus, Paul says, we have obtained access to this grace in which we now stand. That's a strange phrase. That's a strange phrase. How do we stand in grace? Huh? <laughs> well, you stand in it because grace is the state in which we now live. Okay? Grace is the state in which we now live. You thought we lived in Indiana, but that's just on the surface. Peel back the layers, and there's another reality we're living in. It's the reality of God and God's grace, God's undeserved love, God's generous activity in our lives. It's there. It's the state of grace that God wants us all to live in every moment of our day. This is true for all of us who are justified by a living trust in Jesus. We live in the kingdom of God now, where we breathe the fresh mountain air of grace. We are there now, friends of God the King, with access to his power, his presence, and his love. Does this all seem too good to be true? <laughs> Remember, it's God we're talking about here. If God is any, uh, if God seems too good to be true, <laughs> it's because God is far better, far supremely good than any of us could ever imagine. That's God, the God who is love, as John says. And yes, love is also a gift. Love is a most sweet, rich benefit of our newfound friendship with God. For God's love, Paul says, Picture yourself as a container, okay, as a cup. Perhaps you're empty. Perhaps you have a few drops of love in there from close family members and friends. Listen to this. For God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Picture just... Picture yourself as a container. How many drops of love do you have in there? Maybe it's, maybe it's half full, half empty, depending on whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Maybe you've only got 12 drops. God's love, my friends, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, over abundantly, to the brim, overflowing. So open wide your mouth and God will fill it, the psalmist says. He'll fill it with his unconditional love and grace and power. Faith, grace, love, all benefits of God's work in saving us through Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone. Amen? Amen. But in this world we will have troubles. Jesus says in this world you will have trouble. You will suffer, you will struggle, and unless I come back before it happens, you will die. <laughs> but take heart, for I have overcome the world, Christ says. 
So therefore, there's one last benefit Paul describes. It's, it is hope. And we'll need it. Hope. Paul knows this better than anyone. You see, we live in this state of grace, it's true, but all is not, what's the phrase, something in roses? I forget what it's, what's, how's it go? All is not something in roses, flower and roses, I don't know. We still struggle. We still have troubles. And Paul knows this better than anyone else. You know, if you know Paul's story and the rest of the Bible, he finally gets to Rome. That's why he's writing them a letter. He longs to get to Rome. And eventually, he's able to check that off his bucket list. But he's in chains, you see. Following years of his ministry where he was threatened and beaten and imprisoned, following years of this, the climax of his ministry is in Rome, where he's in chains, eventually beheaded by the emperor Nero. This is the Paul that talks about the great gift of hope that we receive when God makes us friends. What is this hope? It is hope that God works all things together for what? For good for his friends. Hope that Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Hope that even when we experience the worst of it all, even death itself, hope that God raises the dead. We boast in our hope, Paul says. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. God's glory is God's brilliance, God's magnificence, God's pure beauty. We who are justified by faith, Paul says, we ought to be joyfully confident of the hope of sharing the glory of God. And hope, Paul concludes, does not disappoint us. Neither does God. God does not disappoint us. For it's God who gives us a life we would never have imagined or been able to construct on our own, a life of goodness and joy and love. Let us pray.